When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Debbie and I are really excited to announce that Psychologists Off the Clock is partnering with Praxis Continuing Education. And when we think about uh, choosing a sponsor, it's really important for us on this show to choose a sponsor that is aligned with the values of this podcast. If we're going to take your time in listening to a sponsorship. We want it to also be a sponsor that would be meaningful and helpful to you. And that's why Praxis was really a no-brainer. It's such a great fit for us. We've had a lot of listeners who have reached out to us to say that they are wanting to learn about acceptance and commitment therapy, or maybe they're in graduate school and they're trying to learn about some of the approaches that we talk about on the podcast. And the best way to learn about acceptance and commitment therapy is to go to an experiential workshop. And Praxis offers some wonderful ones. We sometimes people will ask for book recommendations or something like that, but really you have to get in there and experience it and try it out and do some of the exercises yourself to really and truly learn this model. So for example, in February, February 20th to 23rd, Praxis is offering a boot camp. And what's phenomenal about this ACT boot camp is that it has two of the co-founders of ACT leading it, and uh, Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson, who we both have had on the show, and master ACT therapist Robin Walzer. If you can learn from the developer <laughs> of a treatment and actually see them in action, not only through role play, but didactics and, and them demonstrating it, it will stick with you in a way like no other. I think back to workshops that I've done with these, uh, these folks that were 10 years ago that I still remember the exact exercise that I did with them because it sunk so deeply. Yes, it's an amazing experience. And the next one that they're offering is a four-day workshop ACT Bootcamp. It's February 20th through 23rd in Portland. So it's four whole days to really immerse yourself in the experience. Praxis is offering $50 off if you sign up by January 9th, so get on it. And I know that it's really hard to think about pulling four days out from your busy schedule, from your families, from your graduate school. I've experienced that many times myself. And at the same time, it's really essential for deepening your work as a therapist 
And every time that I've gone to one of these, I've had massive resistance in going. And then I've come back saying it was so incredibly worth it and that I carry the skills that I learned there for years and years after. So take the plunge, sign up and um, learn from these real masters in act. Yep, you can find out more at their website, which is praxisset.com. So P-R-A-X-I-S-C-E-T.com and just look for the ACT Bootcamp. And we'll put those in our show notes as well. So you can just scroll down and find the link there. The holidays give us a chance to gather and we can gather in an inspiring and meaningful way, or we can just gather without any real purpose or reason. And so for the holidays, we wanted to do an episode about how to gather more meaningfully. And when we talk about gatherings, we really mean any time that people come together for any specific reason. And there's so much research in psychology showing that having quality relationships and spending time connecting with people are really important as predictors of health and well-being. So it does matter to take the time and effort that it takes to gather, and it's even better if you can do so with intention and creativity. And as we were preparing to talk about this episode, we were thinking through some of the many different forms of gathering. So you might think about parties and celebrations. Gatherings can also mean just getting together with smaller groups of friends or family, coworkers. It can also mean business meetings, conferences, classes, and even group therapy is a type of gathering. And we're going to be drawing a lot from the book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. And in the book, Priya Parker tackles everything from finding purpose in your gatherings to deciding who to invite, how to host with authority, what to do about rules and etiquette, and really how to inspire and awe people in your groups. And as we read the book, we thought a lot about examples of gatherings that Debbie and I have attended, as well as ones that we've created. So we'll be referring to those, as well as the pitfalls uh, that we got into in creating some of them. Some of those gatherings have been really life-changing for us as attendees and as hosts. Yes, indeed. And some of the heart of this episode comes from our close mutual friend, Meg McKelvey, who is the person who introduced this book to me. Sometimes we refer to Meg as our wolf pack leader, which is our group of five close psychologist friends. You'll hear us talk about some of the gatherings that we've had in this episode. And something I love about Meg is that she's so good at doing this, at gathering people. She brings people together in thoughtful and meaningful ways. So for example, all of a sudden I'll get a text from her in February inviting me to go camping in June. And I'm kind of like, what? Okay, I'll do it. Um, So it takes that kind of thought. And I think Diana, she's the one who brought us together. Yes. So a great big gratitude to Meg McKelvey for supporting our gatherings as a group. And she's really at the foundation of this episode and why we're doing it today. So first, let's start with thinking about the purpose of gathering. So for example, Thanksgiving is coming up around the corner. And if you're going to be gathering, your focus could be on creating a really special meal with your family, or it could be having a Friendsgiving, they say, to connect with friends who can't be with their families or don't have families. Could be honoring someone you've lost or highlighting a theme for Thanksgiving, a theme that comes to mind is gratitude. Priya Parker argues that really the most important thing to do before forming a gathering is to start with your purpose, to think about why you're gathering. And she encourages us to really look at the big picture purpose 
And also look underneath for a deeper why to the gathering. And then you want to plan your gathering to fit with this purpose and the outcome that you're hoping for. So if you think about something like the many baby showers that we've all attended, uh, you know, diaper cakes and those games where you put the little safety pin on your shirt. Did you ever play some of those games? Yeah, I've done a few. Yeah. Sometimes they can be fun. Sometimes it can be painful. And a lot of times we may be asking, why are we even doing this? And, you know, traditionally baby showers were thrown to help out uh, the, the family's financial burden. So you're bringing gifts to help them out. But maybe different if if the the function or the purpose of the baby shower was different than supporting finances so for example if the purpose of the baby shower it is to support the mother in her birth or the purpose of the baby shower is to support a couple in becoming new parents you may design the shower differently and i'm thinking about baby showers that i've thrown Um, such as something like a blessing way, where the purpose was really to support the mother in transitioning into motherhood. And we, because of that purpose, it led to things like bringing a bee to making a birthing bracelet for the mother um, and sharing our our own experiences with parenting and birthing and passing that on in a circle format. So really looking at the purpose as the foundation to guide everything after uh, what you're going to do in a gathering. Parker argues that something that might get in the way of designing your gathering around purpose is this question that might arise, sort of a self-critique, which is, who am I to tell other people what to do or to impose my ideas others on others? And I think breaking from just the same old, same old tradition can be kind of scary. And Tara Moore talks about this in Playing Big, that sometimes we might wonder if, we, if it's okay to do that. But there's really no playing bigger without feeling afraid. And, and so in order to do this, in order to make gatherings more meaningful, you kind of have to just do it and, and hope for the best. So thinking about your upcoming Thanksgiving dinner or holiday party or new, new Year's gathering, for our listeners, really start with thinking about what is the purpose. Yeah, so we wanted to give the example of the time that we met Five psychologists, including the two of us, gathered at Hot Springs in New Mexico called Ojo Caliente. And this was really where the ideas for this podcast came from and also really became the birth of our, we call it our wolf pack, our group of five friends that come together still. We're all psychologists and we're all mothers. And it was just really magical. And there was so much meaning in that experience. And we've been coming together as a group ever since. And our purpose, one, is to create sort of a group of women who are connective, connected and supportive of each other and kind of help each other out through the challenges of life. We practice self-care and restoration together. We talk about being moms and therapists and other parts of our identity. And we learn from each other and kind of almost like a therapy for the therapist, group therapy for the therapist, it feels like sometimes. I was reading a book, uh, by Dan Butner about blue zones of longevity. And in the book, he talks about uh, MOAIs. And so blue zones being the, the places on our planet where there's the largest percentage of centenarians in the world. And there's a commonality of these blue zones that there's an emphasis on community. And Moais are uh, in a tradition that comes from uh, Okinawans in Japan, where at a young age, they group young, they group children together into these groups of five. And these five friends become a, 
a lifelong friendship and they commit to providing social, financial um, support, health support, spiritual support forever. And I, I think that's really what our, our little grouping has become as a bit of a Moai. And we didn't, we didn't know that we had created it, but now we really fight hard to protect that gathering. And we'll talk more about how Priya Parker um, encourages us to protect our gatherings. And it's really hard, I think, with busy schedules to make it happen and to keep it going. And, and to keep the purpose linked yes, to it. And to keep the purpose. Another example of a gathering with purpose was the fall reset and restore retreat that we recently did. I participated, came out to Santa Barbara with you, Diana, and with Kristen Rusky at Goodland Organics Farm. Yeah, and the purpose behind that really helped dictate what we did as the group. So, the, so we identified the purpose as really helping people integrating, integrate mind-body practices and then offering a place for a lot of restoration. And given that purpose, it really um, played out in how we designed the day in terms of how much we focused on the body practices like yoga and sound healing, and then how much we focused on some more of the ACT workshops. And everything, all the little details were sort of designed to make that experience meaningful. Everything from the setting to the, you know, the flow of the day. Yeah. It's so think about that. purpose. That's our starting point. The second step is focusing on who you are going to invite to your gathering. Yeah. And in The Art of Gathering, Parker talks about how over-inclusion can cause problems if you just say, you know, everybody come, there's no exclusion, inclusion criteria. One example of that was at our retreat, we included both therapists and people who aren't therapists, just regular, you know, whoever wanted to come, which was great. Um, but what we found is that they really had different expectations for what they were hoping to get out of it. So the therapists on their feedback wanted more psychology training. That was kind of the main thing that they were there for. But really, that probably would have bored everybody else to tears. Right. Yeah, so exclusion and inclusion criteria are really important in your gathering. Who are you going to invite or not invite? And I think a good example of using our purpose to decide who to invite uh, is in the safe black spaces that we did. Uh, we talked to Dr. Christy Hagens about uh, in episode number five, where she talked about healing racial trauma and in safe black spaces, these are healing circles for people of African ancestry and from their website, they really delineate what is the purpose of a safe black space. So it's clear it's quote to provide culturally specific strategies and resources to help black people heal from historical and current wounds, both individually and collectively. They also state that safe black spaces are, provide a chance for black people to deal with rage, shock, fear, and sadness that so many of us were and are feeling in response to racial trauma and violence. And Dr. Higgins in the episode really highlights how important it is to have these spaces be for people of African ancestry and not to have white people or other people in these spaces. Because, that makes sense. It would change yeah, the tone a lot. Exactly. And if it had a different purpose, so if these groups had the purpose of something like diversity dialogue, then it would dictate a different inclusion or exclusion criteria. So Priya Parker talks about exclusion is actually kind and that we can we exclude thoughtfully and intentionally, it can actually activate even diversity within the group because it creates boundaries around something, parameters for that diversity within the group to flourish. 
Another example um, is actually for, for our, our wolf pack is that we protect the gathering by not having husbands or children <laughs> allowed. That's right. And we might get our families together separately, but when yeah. it's that group of five, that's kind of a sacred territory. It's interesting because I think some of the concepts that she described overlap with another type of gathering, which is group therapy and the mm -hmm. dynamics there. And one of the first things you think about when you're starting a therapy group is inclusion and exclusion criteria. You have to decide who would fit well with this group and who wouldn't. And we recently did a couple of episodes with Hope Arnold on uh, working with people with over control. And she has these skill groups that she does. And she talked to me kind of offline about how when you do those skill groups, you really have to make sure that the people who are coming actually are over controlled in their response style. Because if you have sort of a mix of over and under controlled people in there, it can be a disaster and the material just isn't relevant. And you also make decisions like, you know, should if someone's very actively suicidal or engaging in self-injury, how would that impact things? I know, Diana, you've done a lot of eating disorders work and have to make decisions around you know, do binge eating and restrictive types of eating disorders both kind of go together? Because some, in some ways they have a common humanity with eating related issues, but it can also become problematic and that they're, they're very different and they can, it can invite competition and comparison. So it's really important whether it's a theory, therapy group or a holiday party or a meeting or what have you that you're thinking about who you're inviting and why. It seems the size of the group also really impacts the group dynamic as well. And again, turning to therapy, therapy groups, it becomes a really different group if five people are in the room sharing personal information versus 15. Uh, the five person group may lead to something like an interpersonal process. Whereas when you get up to 15, it could be more of a good skills coaching. And then at 30, we would do something that's more informational and didactic, like a friends and family informational group. Yeah, or I might do a patient education series for a large group. Exactly. So research on group therapy shows that it can be um, as effective as individual therapy in treating a number of different concerns, but it may act in different ways than individual, how individual therapy acts. And I think that some of the research into group therapy applies to our gatherings, right? Because it's just a microcosm of people getting together and what happens. And what some of the research shows is that the most effective groups have a common identity and purpose. So that's the first two things we just talked about. Uh, they also, most effective has two co-leaders. And it just makes me think about hosting a party. If you're doing it with someone else, you can split up what your roles are and you can both be kind of hurting the group and uh, sharing that task of paying attention to the group dynamics. And Peer interactions are also really a key ingredient in the healing aspect of groups. So allowing members to relate to one another really reduces stigma, isolation. And as Yalom, who's a really well-known uh, leader in the field of therapy and group therapy, has said that hearing from peers is often more important than hearing from the leaders. So that's why it's important when designing a gathering to think about who's going to be there, how they can learn from each other, and how you as a host can facilitate that connection between members. According to Parker, where you host should really be related to the purpose. So as an example, some of the locations where we've hosted with our group of five friends, we had our first gathering at the Hot Springs and that was related to the purpose of self-care and we were celebrating someone's birthday who could really use a lot of self-care at that time. And so it felt really related to the purpose. 
Similarly, we've met at a spa in California in the middle of winter when one of our members of our group had a baby, we met close to her home to support the purpose of gathering, but without putting a lot of burden of travel on the mother. And sometimes it can go wrong. So with our group of five, one time we went to a more formal training. And the problem was that is that we were there both to learn together about something and also to reconnect as a group. But because we were doing the training, we didn't really have enough time to connect. And so one purpose was fulfilled, which was the training part, but the being together, we really kind of missed out. And so we even snuck away for part of one of the sessions to have a little mini gathering of our own before we all split up, it felt, which felt really nice. Yeah. So having the purpose uh, really guide the location is important. So in deciding to do the, the reset and restore retreat that we did, doing it at a coffee farm my goodness, it sets the scene in terms of connection to nature and self-care and mind-body and ecosystem. It just really fit the, the theme of and purpose of the event. And now that I've been hosting more uh, workshops at like yoga, at a yoga center, it matches a different type of purpose. It, it allows me to um, do some more experiential work with People and they can really embody the the act principles that I'm teaching in a different creative way because we're at a yoga center. It sets it sets the tone for what we're doing, which I imagine is a very different tone than uh, compared to what you do when you do some act at a VA. Yes, I do act trainings at in a VA setting, and it's much more formal. You know, it's in a very different context, and so we have it usually in a conference room or something where it would feel a little strange for people to be in their business clothes, you know, colleagues who work together sitting there on a yoga mat. And so it, the conference room, usually I luck out if I get a pretty nice one, and sometimes I do, but that's the setting that just makes the most sense for that. For that. Parker also talks about changing locations for different parts of gathering. And so there's something about being able to link different parts of a memory to different locations. And so you could think about this in terms of at a dinner party, sometimes people will move around to different rooms in the house or even different houses on the same block to have like a roving dinner party because you can get something out of each different place. And at our reset and restore workshop, we would move around a bit. We went to the barn where the coffee's processed for Jay Rescue to pour and present some California grown coffee. Then we moved outside for juice and under an oak tree and then we regrouped on couches and floor cushions we went did, did yoga by a pond and went for a beautiful walk through the coffee orchard so throughout the day we were sort of moving to different environments for different purposes yeah our brain wants to organize the information we're more likely to remember what happened at the event if we move people to different different locations and have a purpose behind each location that matches the, um, the energy and the intention of what you want to be doing in that, in that space. So step four is all about how to host. And Priya Parker doesn't mince her words when she says, don't be a chill host. <laughs> she talks about hosting sort of like how good therapists talk about parenting, where it's, we think that we're being kind when we're being passive and permissive, but actually it can be harmful to the gathering and that we need to set clear limits and be authoritative hosts. Uh, she really says that passive hosts can 
leave your guests um, without sort of an anchor and they don't feel safe when we're just kind of throwing them out there without any direction. And again, this is similar to group therapy when the facilitator doesn't step in when there's a problem or kind of redirect when someone is taking up too much space. Nobody quite feels safe in that room. And what Parker says is that your guest will take over the authority if you don't. And the ones that take over may not be the ones that you really want taking over. So beware of that. And I think we've all had the experience of being at a work meeting or a dinner party or a meeting of, or a back to school night or something like that, where someone just won't stop talking and you really need someone to sort of take command, the teacher or the group leader or the party host or the facilitator to, to kind of rescue everyone. And one thing she recommends is that you exercise authority at the beginning of an event and that it's an ongoing exercise throughout. I saw a lovely example of this at a party over the summer that I was sort of invited. I was kind of an outsider invited through a mutual friend and it was a group of women and I was brand new to the group. And what the hostess did was that she had some activities planned she actively sparked some conversations right from the beginning. She just took the lead. She became pretty vulnerable herself. She asked questions. It really helped us get connected really fast, and it set the tone. And it, it What were be, the activities that she did? Well, first she had us do something where we wrote a fact about ourselves on our name tag, and then people were kind of sitting in different clusters in the backyard, and she just started by introducing herself and told us all to go around and talk about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then she had us sort of move inside and she gave away little prizes to people. Um, so it had actually some structure to it and it mm -hmm. really helped. Everybody mm -hmm. just warmed up immediately. And it was, I was really struck by it. I actually wondered if she had read this book. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also part of that, part of good hosting is keeping track of time. And if you have things that you want to happen at your event, you as a host are responsible for moving people from one space to the next. And I think it can be really hard to do that because you may be cutting off conversations or something feels like it's, it's going well, but you also know this other part is really important. And I've certainly experienced that in workshops where there's been multiple presenters or providers. And I know that I have to cut someone off a little bit early to get them to move on to the next uh, presenter. And it's in the service of knowing that everyone needs you know, every, every part of the event deserves the time and space. So that's part of stepping into, I think, your authority uh, as a host. And also, Parker talks about protecting your guests and that we can set guidelines to do that. So I remember um, once I went to a restaurant where actually the host that, that sat us down at the table said, hey, why don't you all put your phones in the middle of the table? And the first one who has to pick up their phone, picks up their phone, has to pay the check. And they were actually setting a little bit of a guideline where this was a nice restaurant. They didn't want people on their phones at the restaurant. And so they made it fun, but they also set some boundaries around that. Parker also says to equalize your guests. So, you know, when you go to a conference, you usually have a name tag that has everybody's fancy degree listed. And if you think about you know, sometimes someone's there with a fancier degree than you or you're in training, you don't have that can actually make you feel like you're not equal or maybe you can't say anything at this gathering until you get that fancy degree, a PhD or master's degree or whatever. What would it be like to only put names first? And so you mm -hmm. don't go into it with this kind of hierarchy of power. We can also equalize our guests around what our attire recommendations are. So 
having people come in what kind of casual clothing or I hosted a birthday party for myself and I just wanted to wear yoga clothes to my own birthday party. <laughs> so I said, everyone come in their yoga clothes and be cozy and bring a blanket. And it sort of just equalized again that we, that I actually, it mattered less to me, the dressing up of for that event and more about just feeling comfortable and connecting around it. Diana, that reminds me, a few years ago, my good friend Bita sent me an article called In Praise of Scruffy Hospitality, Your Home Doesn't Need to Be Picture Perfect to Invite People Over, which was written by Robin Shreves. And I think sometimes we feel like hosting something has to be a really big event. We can put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We think our house has to be perfectly clean and we have to make a fancy meal or something. But in this article, Robin Shreve says that people just really care most of all about seeing you, not about what your house looks like. So a few times Bita and I made a pact not to tidy up. And then we'd both grab whatever food we needed to get rid of in our fridge. And we'd make a meal for dinner out of it. We'd come up with a recipe that we could sort of combine the stuff that we had. And really we wanted to do a fun, creative project, practical, something that we could do without spending a lot of time or money. And most of all, just to be together and share something we both love, cooking together. And by making it simpler and less stressful, we could really focus on having time to connect. And really, for most gatherings, the most important thing is to connect with people and to connect people with each other. And it's important to find ways to bring people together and build cohesion. So one simple thing that you might think of to connect people with each other is as the host to find something they have in common. Oh, you know, you're sitting next to each other and you both have an interest in dance or you both went to Europe over the summer. Give them something to talk about to help them find a way to come together. There's also more formal ways that you can increase group connection and cohesion. And I'm thinking about this retreat that I went on in Peru where the yoga retreat leader, we would, we would take these long bus rides through the Andes mountains. And instead of just being on the bus ride where we could all just be on our phones and do our own thing, what she had for all of the bus rides is each one of us, one at a time, stand up at the front of the bus and share a story about our sides, ourselves that was instrumental in um, who we are today. And it was fascinating because people shared their stories about, one woman shared her story about trauma and how it influenced her filmmaking. Another shared a story about skin condition she had as a child and how it influenced her work now with college students. And by the end of many hours of bus riding, we were a really closely connected group because that host stepped up and made a place for us to connect. In her book, Priya Parker suggests loosening up on traditional etiquette. She invites you to try new things, even creating a temporary alternative world and shake things up in interesting ways to step outside of all expectations of gatherings and make them unique. So when we did our retreat recently, we had a yoga instructor there and I was doing yoga in the hot sun. And all of a sudden, it was way too hot, and I felt like I was getting sunburned during the yoga. And I kind of stayed there a while and suffered in silence, but eventually I got up and put on sunscreen. And what's funny about that is that I was lying there for a long time before I did that, because I always think of yoga as having this rule that you're not allowed to get up and leave, but you can. You can get up and go. You were breaking the rules, but you were maintaining the purpose of the retreat, which was self-care and restoration. And Sometimes we need to, as, uh, as hosts, even create, create some 
alternative rules that overturn existing rules that may be stalling the progress. So again, going back to the purpose and how you could design rules that support that purpose. Uh, for example, I teach uh, kids yoga and in their regular classroom, the rule is you raise your hand and ask, ask questions. But I find that when I'm teaching yoga, all these kids are raising their hands and wanting to ask questions. So I had to create an alternative rule for this gathering, which is we don't talk in yoga. And I give the reason why is because we need to listen to our bodies. And when we're talking, we can't hear our bodies as well. So we can create rules that are sort of not the usual etiquette. Uh, so back to creating an alternative world, I wanted to share about the, uh, the bear that wasn't retreat that we did. And that was amazing. It was really fun. Yeah. Uh, so I hosted all of you to come to Santa Barbara. In, I think it was like a Janu last January. Yeah, I think it was the January before that. But Man. anyway, neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I created an alternative world all based on this book called The Bear That Wasn't by Frank Tashin, which is a children's book. And it's an illustrated children's book about a bear who hibernates and then comes back in the spring. And when he comes back from hibernation, he has this whole factory that's built on top of him. And over the course of the bear, the uh, course of the book, the bear loses connection with his true sense of self. And a lot of people tell him who he is and he loses track with, with who he is, which is a bear. And in the end, he finds his way back again. So we use this book as a myth throughout the whole weekend. And I wanted to create an alternative reality for people arriving so that we followed through the myth. So we did everything from going into our own cave, which was a salt cave in Santa Barbara to finding, you know, our, the people and the people and experiences their life that have lost that have led to us le losing our voice, and we did writing and journaling around it, uh, and then eventually coming out of the cave and going through like a mud bath and a fire pit and all sorts of things. But if you create, if you think about a theme for your event, it also helps people move out of what the expectations are of a girls' weekend into a different kind of reality. Diana, the thoughtfulness you put into that. It was so cool. And the way you set the whole thing up. And part of what was so amazing is that you did something called priming that she writes about in The Art of Gathering, which is this idea that gathering really begins at the moment that the guest first learns about it, right? So for this meeting in Santa Barbara, you mailed us a copy of the book about a week or so before we met up and you asked us to read it to our kids the night before we came on the trip. And so it really got us all very intrigued and kind of started creating the process of going into that alternative reality that you had created. And so what Parker talks about is that you want to spend less time fussing about things like crudités and appetizers and more time getting people prepared kind of in the right mode. And she also talks about a relating concept that you did called framing. So for instance, if you're hosting a funeral, do you frame it as a celebration and remembering, or do you frame it as grieving? So what you want to think about from the get-go is how you're going to frame the invitation. Let's focus on, you know, the font and the design of the invitation and more focus on how you're framing the event. Priya Parker also talks about how it's important to what she calls carry people across the threshold into the event. So once you've primed them and you frame them for what's about to happen, how are you going to get them to enter into this alternate reality? And one of the big pitfalls that we often do is we start our meetings or our gatherings with announcements. <laughs> and what it actually really does is it, uh, it prevents us from 
creating a transition into what, what the purpose of that event is. So for example, when we started our retreat, we, we purposely had people come into the barn where the coffee was, uh, discussion was going to be held and started it by opening with people having a cup of coffee. So that's sort of the launching, getting into this transition of gathering around coffee. And then another important thing that you came up with, Debbie, which was taking people personally down to where they would be finding their location to sit and letting them put their stuff down. And I think that's a really important thing because it creates a sense of home and comfort of knowing this is my place. I love it when a host, when I walk into a party and a host has designated a separate room for you to keep your purse, because I always get into the bustle of the party and then the host walks me there and I put my purse down in that separate room and I feel like, okay, here's a little quiet space where my purse lives. <laughs> I can go visit my purse anytime. As an introvert, I need to visit my purse in that quiet space. So yeah, I think yeah, that, I don't do that, Diana. Yeah. That's oh, my extroverted I nature. I know. <laughs> Go back to the temperament episode if you want to learn more about introversion yeah. and extroversion. But it, it, it's it's important uh, to uh, create this this transition for people so they can feel safe in coming into your party. And it's also important because there's a primacy effect, and that what you do in the first five percent in the last five and the last five percent of the event is what people are most likely to remember. So if you're up there just giving announcements, you're losing the, the attention and that primacy of the crowd. I recently uh, hosted a, a, a training for teachers and it was at the end of a busy day, midweek Wednesday, which I used to hate when I was in school. Wednesdays were so hard. <laughs> Imagine okay. even harder for teachers. And the way that I started that event was I actually placed yoga mats in a circle outside and I had all the teachers just come when they arrived and lie down. So we started the event in a circle lying down. And this was important because of this idea of transitioning, carrying them over the threshold of standing at the front of a class, talk, 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 talking and being on into another space, which was for them to receive. And so it made a lot of sense for them to start, start by lying down with their eyes closed and doing a meditation before we were entering the event. It carries them over the threshold. Open up and let yourself be vulnerable as a way to connect. So Priya Parker really recommends that we turn off our networking pitch. We turn off that desire to put our best foot forward and impress people, put our ego aside and get people to be vulnerable, to get people to open up really sets a nice tone. And so we have a tradition, our group of five friends, which I think is a little embarrassing to admit publicly on a supposedly evidence-based podcast. Not yeah. embarrassing at all. I embrace it. <laughs> you embrace it. I embrace it too, but it's kind of just funny to talk about it out loud in public. So we do these fun tarot cards. They're really fun. We have the latest ones we had were animal spirit cards where you pull a card and find out your animal spirit card. So instead of making small talk chit chat, we find out our spirit card and we talk about important aspects of our lives and ourselves and we give feedback to each other. Diana, you were. I was a cobra. <laughs> And we talked about my cobra shadow side, as well as my cobra strengths, and then how I want to maybe prioritize my my life a little bit differently to help out my cobra energy. And you were yeah, Debbie. Yeah, I go was, ahead. Well, it was just, it's a, it's a kind of a cool way to open up a conversation yeah. about yourself that you might not normally talk about these things. 
Yeah. I was a unicorn, which I've been bragging about ever since, the magical creature that I am. I've been, you know, every time I sign off on a text, I do a unicorn emoji because I think that's pretty darn funny. But really, I think what's great about doing those these tarot cards is that it encourages vulnerability and it allows for our dark side and our shadows to come forward. So we don't feel as much of this need to impress each other. So we use a card deck called the Osho tarot cards that has dark cards in it. And it's an opportunity for us to talk about some painful aspects of our lives. We use it sometimes as a window into some problems we're having. So it encourages us, us to share. And as Parker says in the book, we all have shadow material. Yes, it leads to a much, I think, quick, quick way to get deeper. There's a lot of ways to do that. And part of it is stepping in as a host, the level of vulnerability that you show up with your, your group will show up with a slightly less level, slightly lower level of vulnerability. So it's up to you to set the tone. And one of the ways that I often set the tone um, when I'm doing a talk is sharing a personal story. And all of a sudden, and it's usually a personal story that has nothing to do with psychology, uh, but all of a sudden, and then eventually we'll link it to psychology, but all of a sudden people can get into more of a personal space when you do that as a host. And it's really true in therapy groups as well, that when, when people start to open up and get more vulnerable with each other, that's when the tone shifts to something that's much richer and deeper. Yeah. I hosted a New Year's gathering. And when people arrived, I had them just, I had out on my table, uh, this beautiful Joss paper that I like to use at my workshops. It's, it comes from Chinese money and it has some uh, metal kind of overlay in it. It's very pretty. And I had people write down three things. One thing that they completed this year, one thing that they would like to create in the coming year, and then one thing that remains unfinished. And just let them kind of, as they arrive, they're eating, and just tell them there's a little task for you at this table. And then how we ended, ended the night was to be at a fire around the circle, and each person shared about their three things. And it just opened up the whole group to do some reflections, both self-reflection, but also as a group around some really meaningful things that people had completed. They'd written a book, they'd done a remodel, they, uh, you know, completed projects they wanted to get done, but also what they were hoping to create in the new year. I really can set the tone when we create connections amongst people. That's a great idea. So those who are going to have a new year's gathering of some kind this year can try something like that. Maybe a little beyond the usual. Yeah. So Parker also recommends allowing for some controversy and stoking the heat on it a little bit, but also containing it. Um, So one way way to contain it is to have guests co-create ground rules. We do this all the time in group therapy where we kind of come together as a group and we talk about sort of guidelines for the group and, you know, what people need, what they're hoping to get out of it, what will help them feel safe and take risks in the group. And there's something about sort of keeping it contained that helps really kind of keep the dynamic a certain way. Otherwise, it can be all over the place. Also, having really having the guidelines be created by the guests, not by the facilitator or host makes a big difference because then you can remind people that they created these guidelines at the beginning. And now they have to follow them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the last step of a party is don't forget to close. Don't let things just sort of fall apart at the end. Have as much intention in your closing as you did in your beginning of this gathering. It's important to take stock and really absorb and take in what we've experienced at this gathering. So Priya talks about 
accepting that everything comes to an end, talking about ahead of time, uh, giving people a signal to leave. There's always some people that don't want to leave that like linger. I can imagine you're one of those, Debbie. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not always. Not always. No. Okay. I'm like out the door. <laughs> Pre-closure. I'm yeah, out of here. I'm not like that. No. No. Uh, but it's, we could also create um, some meaning make, making and, and give people time to reflect. So for example, in the reset and restore retreat, we were really intentional in where we placed the sound healing and that that was a part of the absorbing of the retreat and really preparing them for the end of it. And we also uh, gave an opportunity for people to connect one last time. So we ended our retreat uh, with this practice called Hong Yi, which is a traditional greeting from a Maori tribe in New Zealand that I learned from somebody from, from that tribe. And what you do with a Hong Yi is you touch noses and foreheads. Uh, it's very different than a handshake. It really um, is interesting to note that we started, a, we started a day with a lot of people, nobody really knowing anyone. And by the end of the day, we were able to close by touching noses. So it's an indicator of the intimacy and connection that was created in just you know, a few hours together. You also want to prepare your guests for re-entry into normal life, into the real world. Sometimes it can be a bit of a shock to go from a meaningful gathering just back to you know, daily life. So you want to ask them questions like, how are you feeling? What are some of the issues you think you might face moving forward? I do this with my... VA trainings. I do consultation groups in acceptance and commitment therapy that last six months. And on the final meeting, I recently adopted a practice where I do an exercise where we spend some time reflecting back on the whole six months of working together and sort of the ups and downs of what we've learned. And then I end by talking about what people want to take with them moving forward. So in the service of absorbing the material and preparing for the ending of this podcast, we really want to encourage you to continue to meet with groups of people and in doing so, whether they're scruffy or maybe awe-inspiring, make them meaningful and take a look at Priya Parker's beautiful book, The Art of Gathering. And happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.